Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I am a professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Today we're going to talk about conservative populism, and to help us tackle that topic, we have Paul Elliott Johnson, who is an assistant professor of deliberation and public life in the Department of Communication at the University of Pittsburgh. He has a PhD uh, from the University of Iowa, and he is the author of, of many articles and scholarly works, but maybe most centrally, a, a book called I the People, The Rhetoric of Conservative Populism in the United States. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Right. So I'm going to kick off by asking you a kind of, sort of a double-barreled question. And you can think about, you know, you can emphasize whichever part you want um, to kind of lay out the thesis of your book, but also maybe more broadly moving beyond the kind of book talk format. Tell us a little bit about your, your general take on what conservative populism is and how what I'm really interested in is how a communications lens gives us something different than what we may have known or read about populism from political science, history, or sociology. Thanks. And those are, um, I think, really, really generative questions. And, um, and I'll do my best to, to summarize my responses to them. Let me start a little bit with uh, the book's thesis and its sort of origin point, which is that I was in, I was in graduate school late, you know, 2007, 2010, ish, sort of when the Tea Party was kicking off and when the anti-Obama um, moment uh, sort of took the scene. And, you know, as I was working in graduate school, I decided I wanted to write about conservative populism. And, and my thought at the moment was, but what we were seeing in that kind of anti-Obama moment was something really, you know, if not unprecedented, pretty unique and specific to its moment. And as these things tend to go, you pursue the research for years after you finish your dissertation, you work on turning it into a book, and you know you find your right thesis for the book project ends up being reworked significantly. Um, because really what we were seeing in that 08, 09, 010 period through to today, you know, both has significant historical precedence in right-wing politics in the United States um, in ways that... Um, deserve to, to be talked about and addressed. And so the book's major thesis is that conservative populism is the main rhetorical technique, and, and we could identify it as a style that conservatives use in order to make a claim to represent the American people, right? And they're especially invested in being able to appeal to a kind of authentic, real, idea of the population that they kind of have a monopoly on. And so the, the book's thesis is that this element of exercising a kind of linguistic control over the people, you know, manifests actually across time, not just in the sort of 08, 09, 010 reaction to Obama moment, but in fact, it's something that Ronald Reagan is working on in the 1960s and the 1980s. And, you know, the book doesn't talk that much about Nixon, but this is clearly a part of what Nixon's up to in the 1960s and the 1970s as well. And this style, especially once the Cold War ends, remains persistent on the right, but has to be adapted to the changing circumstances. And so the book kind of follows how conservatives are defining the people over time. It focuses mostly on, you know, 
the mass communication, the mass public versions of, of conservatism rather than say intellectual counterpublics or um, those other kinds of groups. And it, it conducts itself as a study mostly in the language that are, is used by these politicians and you know, activists and party operatives and political strategists. And so its major thesis is more or less that the conservative idea of what, what and who the American people are is really indebted to a kind of sense of negativity, that the American people are more by virtue of what they're not than by any kind of positive content. And so whether or not it's the threat of civil rights activists or um, you know the loud minority that they would have been for Nixon or the figure of the welfare queen or Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, it's these figures um, against and these ideas against which the conservatives sort of define their people. And this abiding negativity has a lot of political force and power uh, for the conservative movement and for the Republican Party eventually. But it's also at its base quite a negative definition. And so if people are sort of charting and looking with horror at, you know, a kind of increased negativity, nihilism, sense of destructiveness, uh, lack of a positive political agenda on the right. The book's argument is that this is, is rooted to a great extent in, in the way that this idea of the American people for conservatives ends up needing to be, you know, not black, right? not a woman, not feminized, cisgendered, and so on and so forth. So that's the book's thesis, you know, in, in some is conservatives have kind of kept that consistent over time that they want to be able to own who the people are, but they've had to kind of adapt these definitions at different moments and different times. In terms of how this, you know, informs my more general take on conservative populism and, and how communication especially influences this, I think that's a great question because that is one of the big defining differences in that in political science, you might have populism described as if it's an ideology Right? So that you know, populists have, there are such things as populist platforms. They have consistent uh, holdings between countries, between contexts. You can define what a populist is on the basis of that platform, and then ascribe certain kinds of ideological consistencies to populism. There are also in both political science and political theory, right, is is a possibility of thinking about populism as less an ideology and more like a kind of political language, right? And this is where the intersection with communication comes in uh, pretty significantly because there is already great work in political science that talks about, and in political theory that talks about populism as a style. You know, for example, I'm thinking about um, Benjamin Moffat's work. And here, what the book tries to do is say, let's take this idea of populism as a style seriously, and let's use that to plot a bit of a divergence from other studies that have been done of conservatism, which function on thinking about conservatism as an ideological and philosophical system, right? So you might comb through the works of National Review or you know, the letters that uh, you know, William F. Buckley or Friedrich Hayek or whoever were circulating and say, you know, what is the worldview of this group and you know, how, do, how do they fail or succeed in making manifest that worldview in their works in life? And instead says something like, let's take conservatives at their word by looking at the things that they said in order to either generate popular support or generate at least a significant enough amount of popular and political support that they could continue to or start to enact their agendas and say, what's the kind of world that's being represented there? And so there, the, the idea is that there is this sort of almost 
constitutive or world-making function to the language that they're using. And that plays as, you know, as much of an important role in assessing what conservatism is, you know, as looking at the their ideals as, you know, put together in the political organization, right? The study of their counterpublics or the study of their, um, you know, discipline as a party organization or an nascent party organization or anything like that. Um, so that's the, you know, there's a lot I could talk about, but I think that's one of the biggest things is to say populism is this way of talking about problems. Conservative populism is a way of talking about this problem that actually, to some extent, really has become part of the, for lack of a better word, ideology of American conservatism. And, and as a result, at least some chunk of the, the GOP. Thanks. Yeah, that's a really interesting and way of thinking about the the question. So I wanted to get started in your historical analysis, and then, then I'll hand it over to, to James to ask a question. But I want to kick us off in 1984. So this really came, your book really came at a very fortunate moment for me because I'm looking for sources on 1984 and thinking about the 1984 election and, and specifically thinking about that kind of construction of, of racial ideology and colorblindness out of that election. And really, it's not, you know, as you say in the book, it's not a star player in our canon of important elections. 1980 is sort of gets all the action um, and all the love. And 1984 does not get nearly as much analysis. You do some analysis of that election and how it constructs conservative populism. And you do a close reading of some of the advertisements. Do you want to tell us, maybe run us through some of what you think are the, the key contributions of the 1984 election to what we understand as conservative populism? Absolutely. I, and I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm excited that you're working on 1984 too, because as I got more into the process of working on it, uh, I realized what a, a relatively under-discussed, but incredibly interesting election it is. And I was really fortunate to be able to get some of the earlier access to the files on that election at the old Reagan archive. Well, the, the current Reagan archive, but the materials were old. And so the book kind of looks at that election and says, you know, a little bit, okay, why has that election gone underanalyzed? And in part, it's because in 1980, you know, sort of is the crowning of the Reagan revolution. Uh, you know, Reagan takes the presidency. And so then holding the presidency after you've won, you know, is usually is less interesting because there are, there tend to be these, as you all well know, right, significant incumbency benefits. So as I looked at the election, what I wanted to see was, you know, to what degree is the way that this election's remembered, right, as a kind of like sunny, feel good, you know, optimistic, right, the very famous morning in America campaign line. How might that line need to be complicated and thought through a little more um, with a little more thickness in relationship to especially questions of social difference like, um, you know, racism and sex and gender? And what I found was at least two really interesting things were, right? One was the extent to which the advertisements actually say things in, in relatively plain view that would be objectionable if they were sort of stated more straightforwardly in, in direct language. Um, you know, namely that what, it, what has, has already drawn some attention, right? That the campaign focuses on an overly suburban white America, that, that shouldn't be taken to be a sort of on its face to be, oh, this is some good, friendly, friendly, sunny optimism. Like, you know, let's get together and, you know, talk about what a great place America is. But it, as a straightforward statement in a world where, you know, property values were mostly declining for Black homeowners, you know, the ability to move to a new neighborhood or purchase property for everybody other than really relatively well-off white Americans was declining. 
you know, the, the advertisements do actually read as a kind of almost like a straightforward celebration of these, you know, accelerating indexes of, uh, you know, inequality and, and violence. And then I was also struck at, in working on the chapter, you know, the degree to which the people who were putting these advertisements and campaigns together understood just how kind of fragile the Reagan coalition was in 84, and that if the economy had just gone a little more sideways in, in 83 or 84, it all could have come crashing down. And, and I think this goes to the, the heart of the project, which is about these, the way the conservatives are often thinking in reactionary terms. They were legitimately concerned that a kind of rainbow coalition style, right, left liberal center alliance, you know, kind of a multiracial group, that that might really congeal into something if the economy continued to struggle. Right? The language they even use in some of these memos is basically that the little, the little guy in their terms has to be understood to be on the side of, uh, you know, Reaganite republicanism, but that if the economy keeps being bad, yeah, kind of, you might see a, a multiracial, multi-class coalition of people emerge who understand that what's going on with the economy is bad for them. And that the, you know, so-called Reagan Democrats who voted for Reagan in 1980 might've been able to see something along the lines of like class solidarity again, emergent if the sort of, if the, the, the weak recovery uh, hadn't been sustained. So I found that to be, you know, a very interesting insight as well, that it's not just that this was optimist, optimistic pablum that was conceived of, you know, to try to trick people per se, but that the people who put it together, who were mostly Madison Avenue executives, part of this group called the Tuesday team that the Reagan campaign had assembled for the, the election, knew very well that they were like lying you know, more or less to the public and that they had a really kind of narrow needle to thread. And that was, uh, I, I found very interesting at the level of, of how worried they were that the story they were telling about the American people was, right, could be, could be falsified or was just wrong. No, this is great. I'm really fascinated. I was thinking about and listening to this, this back and forth. And I, I just want to start off by saying I find this a really interesting book, and it's a really interesting uh, set of questions. And there's a lot there. There is a lot there. And I want to kind of, I guess my first question, and what I'm curious about is is this notion of the people more broadly, and what it says about um, how we think about our politics, right? Because if you think about populism, conservative or otherwise, it's about, it really, it's about ruling. It's not about self-government. That is, it's positing an interpretation of, you know, the people in air quotes here. And it declares all who disagree with that, you know, interpretation, either explicitly or implicitly, is somehow an enemy or opponent of the people. And at that point, I think politics becomes, it's not a process in which we participate. You know, as you say in the book, in which we kind of negotiate and refine this idea of the common good, that's self-government, Right. Politics then becomes a production process in which we're assembling a product. And that product is assembled according to a blueprint that's been designed by someone else, by the people or the person interpreting the people. And that's that's rule, right? And if you think about it in our political system, that's not possible for the people to step into the shoes of the sovereign because there is no national electorate in a formal, strict constitutional sense. We have peoples, as is uh, is a Supreme Court Justice uh, 
Marshall points out in Macaulay v. Maryland, but the people exist in plural. They exist in different states, that there is no one national people to step into the shoes of the sovereign. And in many respects, that is one of the reasons why we have evolved differently as as a nation than, say, France, and why our revolution may have turned out a little different than it did there or that it did in Russia or elsewhere, right? Because the people, the majority, can't step into the shoes of the sovereign and rule. But we still use the people. We still use that concept of the people to set up debates that we have in our self-government to make it easier for our side to win by pressuring the other side, even if they're not persuaded by the merits. And I guess my question is, to what extent is this new? I mean, is it new? And is it just among conservatives? I mean, I, I mean, on one hand, I could say that the whole idea of conservative populism, not so much as you're analyzing it in the book, but when you read about it in the media, um, when you see it in debates on the House and Senate floor, when it's being invoked, it can typically be invoked to to delegitimize and push out um, this notion of of a people who may disagree with what the speaker is is saying in their interpretation, right? But when I say is this, to what extent is this new, I'm reminded, I have to just quote it because I think it's one of the greatest speeches in American political history. But William Jennings Bryan's 1896 Democratic National Convention speech, right? Where he invokes the, at the very end there, you know, he invokes the toiling masses. And he says, that's who we've got behind us. And he says, you shall not press down upon the brow of labor, this crown of thorns. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. It seems to me that Brian is, is, has a firm conception of what the people are, who the toiling masses are. And he's defining them in opposition to the kind of, you know, the, the, the corrupt gold standard loving, you know, top hat wearing, monocle wearing robber baron type who is now an enemy of the people. But I mean, is that somehow different than what's happening today? Or is this something that's been with us all along? Yeah, so I, I hear in there sort of two questions, right? One of them, maybe I'll just start with this one because it's the freshest in my mind, is this first question about how do we want to map contemporary populism in relationship to the legacy of kind of the most famous, somewhat successful, progressive appeals to the idea of the people, right? And I think William Jennings Bryan is a great representative of this, right? America as a country, I think it's fair to say, or maybe not, you know, has this more conservative bent to its labor politics than a lot of other quote unquote developed Western democracies, right? And as a result, its main vocabulary for for forcing progressive change has been the language of what Michael Kazin called producerism, right? And that in his in his book, The People's um, about sort of populist rhetoric. And, and he pulls the term from someone else who I, I apologize, I'm sort of forgetting at the moment. Um, sometimes this is called within Marxist circles, right? Productivism. Um, as in the work of, of Moish Postone. And this idea is this notion that as long as you pay in, then the system should pay out to you. And so if you're you know, putting in and you're toiling and you're a member of the masses, then that needs to redound to your benefit at, at some level. And that's quite different, actually, from the way lots of, you know, at least the way some other right, liberal democracies think about this matter of whether or not people deserve to be a part of a polity but there's this kind of part of this producerism that at its, at its base was somewhat anti-egalitarian and that the idea of who could be a producer, right? The kind of person who was brought to mind by William Jennings Bryan's language for some and for many in the legacy that followed was limited, right? Who can really produce? 
white guys. You know, can women produce? Mm, I mean, maybe eventually, but but maybe not, right, in the eyes of many. Can black people? No, they can't be a part of the people and so on and so forth. So one way that to think about conservative populism is to say, it doesn't emerge, it, it does partly emerge as a response to the successes, if you want to say, of a producerist, right, progressivism and then the New Deal in the early late part of the 19th and the early part of the 20th century. But it also, as Kazin points out in his book, it doesn't, like as characteristic of most dialectical relationships, it doesn't totally break with what came before. So that when Nixon you know, takes the idea of the silent majority as it was being laid out in George Wallace's rhetoric and redeploys it, part of the tacit assumption and the explicit right politics of what's going on there is that, you know, they're making a claim about how only the real Americans, right, the ones who really make the polity valuable, who are, you know, put their heads down and work and don't make a ruckus, those are the real Americans. So this kind of producerist obsession with masculinity and whiteness and wanting to make sure that if you're a white, a white guy, you have this claim to be a real American because only your labor matters, that weirdly gets carried through in the way that you know late second half of the 20th century and early 21st century conservatism develops its language. You know, so that the masses, the, the energy behind the kind of toiling masses that that Brian invokes gets co-opted and carried over to uh, some degree conservative standards, right? In which the kind of latent and tacit inequalities that laid in wait in our producerist vocabulary are then kind of weaponized very aggressively by, by conservatives. Um, you sort of see this in the, the early Tea Party moments, right? When they're t- Santelli is ranting about winners and losers and people are talking about how Obamacare will create parasites and all that. Like that's a, that's a language of producerism that's actually right, quite familiar uh, from the early part of the 20th century. I read the first question you're asking there as a kind of structural question, right? That, that is to say the American political and governmental system is, is basically built to stamp out, right? Not just stamp out any single definition of the people, but to the extent that we have a somewhat anti-elite governmental design to just deny some degree of legitimacy to any absolute claim to popular sovereignty. And in that measure, I think there is a kind of, I don't know if you want to call it savvy or fortunate, right, uh, or historically determined, convergence between where conservatism ends up aligning in the late last third of the 20th century through to today, where it wants to make an argument about a kind of narrow definition of the people. And it just so happens that they're able to posit that these fundamental elements of the American polity, right, a relatively undemocratic Supreme Court, a Senate that is about geographic, right, rather than proportionate um, representation, these anti-democratic elements of the American government function in some ways both to confirm the conservative case that their people are out of power and kind of at the same time can offer some support for it. Because to the extent that liberals and progressives, you know, want to talk about populism, want to talk about consensus or, or unity, we have a political system that's built to like never produce that. And to think about that is actually a kind of dangerous problem. So conservatives can kind of play both ends against the middle and say, well, on the one hand, our people is kind of frustrated and has been driven out of power, right? And needs to take over. And on the other hand, you know, when liberals make an appeal to a kind of consensus politics, conservatives can not without some historical cause point to that and say, if you think that what we're aiming for here is unity and consensus, right? And that the people should be in charge, 
you don't understand how the system works, <laughs> you know, the way that it's been designed. And like with most sort of hypocrisies or tensions, that doesn't kind of keep conservatives up at night as much as uh, I think those tensions, contradictions, maybe keep some of their political competitors up. I want to actually pick up on the the gender piece of this, because that's something you really emphasize, too, in the book is this sort of masculinity and victimhood. And I know you've also emphasized that in other work that you've done. I'm curious how this sort of fits in with the emergence of this, this thing I've really watched with fascination, what I think of as a kind of archetype of conservative women. It's sort of this like kind of frontiersy, hyper feminine vision of of um, conservative women. So we have like Sarah Palin, we had a bunch of figures like this around the kind of Tea Party moment, people like Michelle Bachman. And then now we have this sort of Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, there are a lot of women who are kind of important faces of conservative populism or of Trumpism. And I'm, I'm curious how this how this fits in with this sort of ideology you described from like 1994 and i think of this as this very sort of heavy rush limbaugh moment where it is a little bit of a it is a little bit of a clubhouse um and you kind of feel like there are no no girls allowed how do we read this it's really fascinating um you know i think nancy leong right has, has coined the term identity entrepreneurs to talk a little bit about the sarah palin phenomenon specifically you know, but also applies it to the more general phenomenon of what she calls the nod to gone girl, this idea of the kind of cool girl, that is to say, like, women who both who preserve their femininity, but also keep it at enough of a distance that they can be part of the boys club. And I think if we want to talk about what happens from 94, where the, the press can talk about unironically, right, about the idea that it's the year of the angry white male, and like, maybe it's just time for Time, once again, finally, question mark, for white men to have their voices heard at the ballot box. Um, through to 2008, 2009, 2010, where there's increasingly, and I think you put it really well, somebody like Sarah Palin kind of does become the face of the Tea Party, right? This trope of the mama grizzly, you know, you can you if you protect your family and you hunt and all of that, then, you know, you're sort of performing the right kind of, of femininity to be granted admission into into the conservative movement. And so I think this is, it testifies in some ways to the importance of having the right enemies, uh, I think, for a, to, to a great extent. There are many great histories and studies that are written, of course, of the kind of complicity of white women's femininity uh, and white women's complicity in sort of contributing to projects of white supremacy and, you know, right-wing extremism and all that. And I think that when you look, for example, in you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, if you look, for example, at her keynote speech to the Tea Party Convention in Nashville, Tennessee, around that period, that speech is can be condensed down to Palin insisting on the necessity of freedom. And her definition and understanding of what freedom is, if you read the speech at length, is fundamentally incoherent. And I don't say that as a, I don't say that as a pejorative, right? Actually, one thing that I think in communication studies that, that we do a, a good job of showing is that the repetitive use of emotionally charged and laden terms to the extent that an audience can get behind it without worrying about whether or not it's a proper definition is a sign of ideological and political effectiveness. And Palin picks up this sense in our, in our culture about victimage, injury, wound. Really, partly it's downstream of 9-11. I don't give George W. Bush a lot of, of ink in the book, but 
you know, there is in one thing that happens between 94 and 08 is, you know, 9-11 happens. And the United States, you know, is once again given the opportunity to think about itself as a threatened entity. Um, conservative politicians and, you know, GOP operatives seize on the opportunity to use that for electoral gain. And that when Palin, Palin picks this ball up and runs with it, you know, she's doing it in the context of the country finally having its first, right, um, you know, mixed race, right, to her, many of her students, right, Black president, Barack Obama. So that it's as much about understanding that if you use the right words in the right way and say them often enough, that it can do two things, right? One, it codes you as a member of the movement, right? So, okay, fine. We're all gathered here together around a rather incoherent definition of freedom. And that's been the case since Ronald Reagan, but maybe also just since the, you know, consecration of the country. Okay. And then also it provides a kind of alibi, right? For supporters who worry that the kind of standard bog fever swamp story about the Republican Party, right? That it is an old boys club. It's just, you know, Rush Limbaugh smoking cigars with people and, you know, making a bunch of jokes about sexual harassment and women's lib and identity politics and all that. It's also a way of saying, well, look, here's an actually existing instance of a person who is a woman who performs, right, in ways that are demonstrably feminine in many cases, right, consider the sort of uh, conventional attractiveness of Palin uh, and the way that was picked up in popular culture through various parodies and imitations, and says, you say what you will about her, but you can't deny that, and I think this is kind of where a lot of the current panic about, you know, trans and, you know, gender nonconformity is coming from, but she's definitely a woman, and if the movement can assemble some of these folks who come from the groups that supposedly Republicans or conservatives don't think are, you know, humans, don't think are people, well, then we have a kind of demonstration that refutes this. And that's, that is kind of different from some of the late, late 70s, early 80s efforts. You know, if you look in the archives at some of the materials that for the Reagan campaign in 84 and 80, they were mindful that they were really fighting, right, a really uphill battle. And they're like, we understand that poor Black people aren't going to vote Republican. I'm like, you know, of course, of course, they're not going to do that. Whereas there's this move to sort of say, well, if we can kind of brand what's going on in ways that make it legible to the direction that the party is going and also legible to conventional understandings of, of you know, in this case, gender, then maybe we can make something of it. And, and to some extent, I think some of that has carried forward. Yeah. So. There's a lot in my mind right now in trying to think about this. But again, I think to go back to the, the critical period prior to the Constitution where we had majorities in the states that were basically purporting to rule and to pass laws that were infringing upon the, the rights of minorities and of individuals, obviously not all majority minorities and individuals uh, were particularly concerning to the, the framers of the Constitution. We all know that. and But the fundamental dynamic was there. And they wanted to figure out a way to prevent that rule and how to create a space in which they could force this argument of individuals, not of people, but of individuals, of people, um, of individual people coming together and arguing and debating and, and participating in a process that could be uh, you know, nice. It could be, you know, not so nice, but ultimately it's a process of self-government and not necessarily of rule. And when I think about and when I see what's happening today in our politics, we're not doing that so much. And it looks like that the conservative and liberal conservative and progressive kind of rhetoric, it's almost like they're two sides of the same coin, right? Uh, when we say, you know, like consensus politics, well, you know, that's if if it's a consensus, it, we don't need politics for it, right? I mean, compromise is about people who disagree coming together 
in arguing about their disagreements and trying to prevail and then getting like 60%, 40%, 20%, whatever it may be. But what we try to do now is we try, and I think on both sides and conservatives are equally guilty of this, we try to kind of delegitimize people ahead of time by the frames that we use to push them outside of the boundaries of acceptable political conflict. And I'm wondering though, to what extent does this reflect the electoral focus of our politics, right? And then how does that, and if it does, how does that then distort our understanding of politics and how it's dysfunctional? For instance, if you're a Republican party or a conservative party and you, you know, the rhetoric is very vague, the rhetoric is extraordinarily vague. And to what extent does that vagueness reflect the kind of absence of agreement on anything of substance? I mean, the conservative intellectual movement right now is in shambles. It's been in shambles for a, a while, and there's not a lot of agreement within it, and there's never really been a lot of agreement within it. But they can't really talk about that, so what do they do? We blame the other side. We say, vote for us, because if you don't, look at the people who are going to take over, and the republic's going to fall into the ocean. But similarly, I think you see the same thing on the left, and you see the same thing amongst Democrats. Vote for us, or if you don't, then everybody's going to have a gun walking down the street. You know, you will never be able to get an abortion. Uh, immigration, like you can just go down the litany of policy proposals. And like, if you don't vote for us, all of these really bad things are going to happen from the other side. And then, you know, I think the joke though, is that nothing ultimately happens because that interplay between people who disagree is how you get compromise. You pass immigration bills by debating them and arguing them, but no one seems to have that because it would then undermine this perception of unity in our rhetoric that we're presenting to the American people. And I think that that is really at the core, and I've brought this up on this podcast a lot, of our kind of current political dysfunction. And what I guess I'm trying to get at is, is that something that you see affecting both sides? I'm not you know, passing judgment on one or the other. I'm just trying to get to an understanding. Because when I look out at American politics today, I see a lot of sameness. I see a lot of agreement in how we think about politics, the activity that it entails, and how we go about trying to win in it. And I think that's the problem. I would agree that there is a, you know, a focus on electoral politics to at the expense of the other things that you can do in your life that are also, right, civic and important and are about care and are about sustainable like life and community and defining those things together in concert, right? And I think that there's, as we know, there's a whole span of of work that examines how folks work in organizing spaces and how communities navigate traumas and, you know, the ways that everyday life to a great extent might be navigating through these kinds of questions without them being sort of polarized by virtue of their proximity to like capital P politics. And, and so clearly, you know, this book, as I've put it together, is mostly a study of capital P politics and is by definition, you know, more likely to at least tacitly in some ways, right, contribute to this continued direction of attention towards politics, towards some of these other things. And I, and, and I think I agree fundamentally with another thing that you said, which is that there is this sense of totality, right, a kind of apocalyptic totality that can be attributed to both liberals and to the right, where there's this notion that the party against which they are competing, you know, represents a kind of existential threat. I would sort of say that an area where I depart a little bit is to say that I think what the, the discourses of the right have built to is this notion that we're not really going to have much of a debate about what 
the good life is anymore. Instead, what we're going to say is there's something like an idea of real America that corresponds in a one-to-one basis with the notion or idea of what a good life, what the good life is. And we will operate politically on the basis of a kind of reactionary resentment, which takes for granted something like a monopoly on the ability to know who a real American is, and we'll work backwards from that. How does that, and, and, I, and this sincere question, how does that differ from, say, you know, if you have questions about voting regulations? which you know, voting laws are going to uh, benefit one side or the other. They always have. Some are better than others. But the idea that we use when we talk about voting regulations today is that there is this kind of platonic ideal voting regulation and anything that opposes that is somehow racist, right? That, that is the same kind of, uh, and look, certainly racist people support voting regulations that prevent people they don't like from voting. I'm not denying that. But when you look at the rhetoric over voting policy and electoral reform in this nation, it seems to me very much like it's invoking a, plat- a platonic essence of the ideal voting regulation. And anybody who disagrees with it disagrees for one reason, one reason only, because they're, they're racist, and therefore they're illegitimate, and that's the wrong position to take. I think that that's basically right, but I think there's an element of, of, call it heterogeneity or diversity in the Democratic Electoral Coalition that just makes me less concerned that the kind of platonic kernels there, right, risk turning into something more grim. Whereas I think, as the book sort of details, this commitment to a kind of rhetorical homogeneity on on the part of conservatives is lining up with the parties, to some degree, the party's demographics, although not, a, I think there's, you know, interesting ways to keep that story complicated, but also in particular, right, moving towards the support of the political alliance that for a long time backed this realignment of the American conservative party in this direction towards less regulation, towards imagining that free markets are better at solving problems than other ways of solving problems. And imagining that the prioritization of individual liberty is, you know, in and of itself a kind of political program. So, I mean, I think what guardrails were in place, you know, to prevent that slide towards totality in the conservative, intellectual, or discursive ecosystem, those seem to me to be in a much poorer state of repair than on the other side, where you look at a democratic coalition that is continually accused of not knowing what it wants. You know, and that's partly because its coalition really is to some degree unsure of what it wants, because I guess this is kind of a callback, you know, the quote unquote democratic people are much more difficult to determine and define in a kind of fixed way. And they don't even necessarily all agree on whether or not they, you know, represent the people, because you have strains of folks, for example, you know, liberals, uh, consensus oriented liberals who are like actually just saying, invoking the people is anti democratic. Like we shouldn't leave that up to, up to a question. I'm thinking about, you know, like a, a John Werner Mueller, right, in the political theory world, or somebody like a Yasha Monk, who kind of makes that statement kind of explicit. And those are people that are kind of part of the democratic coalition, too. So you have, on the one hand, people are pushing back really hard, and and they have power within the democratic coalition to say, maybe this isn't the only way of seeing the world, as opposed to a conservatism, which, as you alluded to earlier, right, where the intellectual state is in serious disrepair, the people who would have been doing the close readings of Edmund Burke or whatever to kind of hang out and be like, Hey, maybe we should like worry a little bit about our monopoly on the claim of the nation. Like they're being marginalized. They're writing excellent essays at the Dispatch and the Bulwark, and I enjoy reading them and you know feel intellectually enlightened by them. But you know, I mean, they're basically like toilet paper to Nick Fuentes and people of that type. 
Yeah, this is a good point about kind of the the um, the trajectory of different types of conservatism, which I found myself thinking a lot about during your um, as I read your book. So I have one more question, and then um, we'll we'll wrap it up. My last question has to do with something that you write in the book about the kind of the way that this kind of populist language on the right contests the or undermines the legitimacy of the state in particular. And I wonder if this is, you know, as I'm like, I'm teaching a, a class on presidential history right now, and I basically tell my students this, this question about the power and role of federal government is kind of the perpetual one in American politics. So I'm wondering if you think that that'll be, that'll be a source of continuity as conservative populism changes over time, or if there's going to be a new realm of contested legitimacy uh, that'll move away from the sort of Reagan era that uh, kind of very focused on the state kind of emphasis. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm reading the question right, I mean, I think part of what you're pointing to is also something that one of the way, big things that needs to be talked about when you talk about any kind of conservative Republican realignment in the last 50 or 60 years is this idea of right intensifying capitalism or sometimes called neoliberalism. And that's, we understand, often tied to the idea of the state kind of receding in, to some degree in its importance, um, less regulation, you know, less taxation, and so on and so forth. And that has been a central, as you suggest, orienting point to understand a lot of right conservative rhetoric in the United States, not just in the last 50 or 60 years, really, but really for a long time. So to, to say, what role will the figure of the state continue to play? I mean, it's tough because I think on the one hand, it will remain incredibly powerful in these ecosystems, right? I mean, I think if you were constructing a set of God terms for the current state of conservatism that you feel like will have a lot of power for the next decade, the deep state as a phrase seems to be one that I would have to probably put on that list. So as, as a, a, a simple rhetorical entity, right, people will invoke Washington, D.C., right, as the Leviathan, you know, the seat of government. They'll invoke the state. They'll invoke the deep state. They'll invoke, you know, threats of, they'll continue to invoke threats of government conspiracy, right, in the sense that, you know, under Obama, there were these invented FEMA camps and Operation Jade Helm. And the state is fundamentally involved in these other things. As a matter of electoral negotiation and how actually existing politicians engage with the actually existing state, I think it's a much more complicated question for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, you have climate change, and that basically calls for some kind of sovereign solution that is mandated centrally and that is potentially enforced by a monopoly on violence, and it's intensifying. And so as a practical matter, I don't think that the state can be forsworn whether or not you want to pursue a kind of environmental leviathan solution to that problem or a kind of, uh, you know, green authoritarianism, uh, which is something that the right sort of is, is in ways potentially interested in. Um, but you also have the problem of the state and its central involvement in the pro problems of mass incarceration, um, you know, police violence, uh, anti-Black racism, and so on and so forth. And that those have become incredible orienting points of animus, right, in the last decade, um, you know, so that the story of Donald Trump's presidency is as much the story about him sort of reacting, manifesting as a reaction to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, as it is about a lot of other things. And so that state, the one that gets to met out, right, the sort of abjecting, immiserating violence and carceral punishment, right, and as the book sort of details, like, that idea of making sure that the right people get punished and the wrong people you know, um, you know, <laughs> white people, uh, you know, don't, 
is really important. And the state remains as an, a really important apparatus for kind of enforcing those sorts of distinctions. So that I think that the state will remain this important rhetorical signifier of a threat and a danger. But in practice, you know, reliance on it will continue because it's necessary to function as this kind of punitive apparatus who sends the proper coded messages about who's in and out of the, the coalition, the group, and you know, th- who gets to belong in, in the collective American people. Really interesting. And I think that note of uh, kind of duality and the question about rhetorically, when when we have this kind of populist turn, who gets to remain in the collective American people is, I think that's a really great note to end on. So thank you so much for, for joining us. This has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.